Welcome to episode two of Shaping Global Markets. I'm your host, Natalie Arbor. If you're just tuning in, this is a series focused on key topics in the regulatory and financial technology space. Every episode, I'll be joined by industry experts and we'll try to answer some of the most asked questions. And we truly love to hear from you about topics you want us to cover as well. So please subscribe, leave a comment, or follow us on Twitter at Defense Solutions. I'm truly excited to speak with today's guest. Not only is he the Chief Information Security Officer at DFIN, Danny Combs is a self-proclaimed OG of cybersecurity, and he has been working in the field for more than 20 years. In that time, he has held many positions across industries and contributed to several publications as a leader in information security, including Corporate Secretary and Forbes. Notably, he served in the United States Air Force for eight years, managing information security and risk mitigation activities for the North American Aerospace Defense Command Air Force Recruiting Command, Pacific Air Forces, and various intelligence agencies. Most recently, before joining DFIN as Senior Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer, he also worked in telecommunication. So welcome, Danny. I'm so excited to have you here today to talk to us in Chicago on this brisk morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So before we dive into some of the bigger topics that we'll talk about that affect our industry, I wanted to sort of take a step back and find out a little bit about your career trajectory, which ultimately led you to this senior position at DFIN. You have an impressive history beginning in the Air Force, where you earned two Air Force Commendation Medals and five Air Force Achievement Medals. Um, So first, thank you for your service. But also, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about your experience in the military and how that influenced your interests and career? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first, thank you for the fantastic introduction there. So I, I did spend eight years in the U.S. Air Force, um, and I was very fortunate, primarily because of the era to which I joined. Um, back in 1993, technology was really just starting to take hold in corporate America, coming out of the basements of government facilities and, the, and universities and the alike, and so as did security. Secondly, uh, relative to the opportunities that that provided, I'll give two examples. I remember going to my first DEF CON conference in 1995. And DEF CON, if you're not familiar, it's a very infamous hacker mm-hmm. slash security researcher conference that's held every year in Las Vegas, Nevada. There were probably 150 people that attended that conference. And it was fantastic because we would share outcomes of our research. We'd share tools and scripts and things that we had developed. We would learn more about the latest trends of attack techniques and motivations and, and et cetera. Not to mention uh, interact with, interestingly, your adversaries. And last year, or this past August, I should say, there were 30,000 people that attended. Wow. And so that's, I give that reference point because it's inspiring to me just how rapid my professional domain has grown, how much has come to the forefront. Um, I remember for many, many years, both in the military context as well as in the corporate context, um, my first office in the, at Abbott Laboratories, a large pharmaceutical company, was in, literally in the basement of an IT building on their campus. And today, I present quarterly to the board of directors of a billion-dollar company. Right? So it's, it's, it's been quite the rapid trajectory relative to the reliance upon security for organizations, the opportunities it provides for individuals such as myself. Um, going back to the Air Force, I just want to give a little... A little shout out. My grandfather served on D-Day because just a few days was Veterans Day, right? Mm-hmm. And I was the third generation of, of men in my family to, to serve in, in the U.S. Air Force going back to the Army Air Corps days. So my grandfather served on, he, he was one of the 
of America's uh, f- greatest generation that stormed Omaha Beach. My father hand carried the Panama Canal Treaty to the White mm-hmm. House. I served in the, the era of the Kosovo Yugoslavian conflicts and Cobar Tower bombings and 9 11 events and the alike. And uh, very happy to share. My son's actually serving now. And interestingly, the the same unit that I did for my final assignment uh, in the intelligence community. To that end, when you serve in the intelligence community and military, it really provides you fantastic opportunities, both from experiential perspective, but they have a unique budget structure. So plenty of opportunities to work on advanced technologies, uh, emerging technologies, and and, and really you definitely get trial by fire um, if you are fortunate to, to land those types of roles. And it really has served me quite well. Can you talk about your experience seeing it evolve over the 20 years and where you started in 93 to what it looks like now? And it seems like it's more sophisticated, obviously, in different ways. Mm -hmm. If you could talk to a little bit about that. Sure. I remember reading the FBI annual security report in 2006, and there was a very important uh, metric that just just really blew my hair back, which was that cybercrime in 2006 had surpassed global narcotics trade. Okay. And so for me, that was definitely a watershed moment. And when I think about the technologies that we employed uh, and the problem statements we were trying to tackle uh, back in the late mid-90s to the late 90s, they were a lot more simple. Our biggest advantage at that time was just the knowledge of the underlying infrastructure and technologies mm-hmm. of the operating systems, how the Internet actually works, even as simple as how when you type that email, the six or seven steps that are actually um, transpiring in the background to route that message. Mm -hmm. Today, we take all that for granted. Today, it is significantly more sophisticated. You no longer, we're less focused on firewalls and major blocking and tackling. Um, Today, as we were even eight years ago, our approach was much more focused on infrastructure. Today, our approach is very much centered around data. Today, the majority of the internet is actually encrypted. It all appears to be the same protocols, as we'd say, of HTML traffic and HTTP, HTTPS. And so it's very difficult to identify those flows that will cause harm to an organization. And so we have to employ uh, different techniques. And so you, we, and we, we've heard the buzzwords across almost every industry, of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. But we're, the security industry has truly embraced those capabilities and technologies. Unfortunately, so have our, our adversaries. We've seen a number of AI-driven attacks. You know, the, your easier attacks to mitigate are very often not the result of a, of a human on the other side of, of that keyboard. Um, around 2010, I remember justifying my first large budget, um, and I was meeting with the CFO and the chief operating officer of a $2.7 billion company. And they were just beside themselves that I was asking for 7.5% of the IT budget, which was interesting because I had lowered it to be in line with Gartner's recommendation of 7.5%. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a, and today that's grown to be 14%. Wow. Um, based upon... So double in correct. in 10 years. Correct. And that's not an insignificant number, obviously. Right. Tens of millions of dollars are necessary. And that's to, again, tackle the well-known challenges that we all face. It doesn't take into account, probably a better way of saying this, is it doesn't take into account the company-specific attacks that more and more organizations are forced to contend with from very sophisticated bad actors from nation-states to criminal organizations in Eastern Europe and in Asia, um, wherein, you know, your standard controls just aren't going to be as effective. With sort of the complexities that have come and adding more 
layers to keeping things secure. It seems that sneaky tactics and phishing emails are still coming up as one of the primary sources for adverse actors within a corporation. So what, if anything, maybe tactics or solutions are there that we can keep top of mind to keep our data secure and keep the organizations in which we work secure? It's a great question. It, it, it is Surprising to so many when I share with them statistics around the effectiveness of phishing. While the sophisticated technology that's brought to bear every day to compromise organizations is very effective, it is not as effective as the human factor has been of late. A large number of your large-scale breaches have been a direct result of simply crafting an email and convincing the the recipient to click on a link or to open an attachment. And that risk has been communicated for many, many years. And so it, it can be frustrating for a person like me to continue to struggle with this, if you would. However, there has been a more concerted effort. So this year, we've seen a, a surge in that type of malicious activity. And it's been interesting to see the bad actors specifically target a named organization to do the research, to get to a named individual within accounting. It's very common, actually, within roles like mine, actually, because that can be quite embarrassing for a CISO mm-hmm. to be compromised. But they, you know, the targeted campaigns have become very, very common of late, very effective. Often the goal is to conduct some sort of financial fraud. But it also serves as a fantastic delivery vehicle for a bad actor to gain access to a network or to a company by installing malware that's embedded into a Word document or PowerPoint or Adobe. Often you'll hear us as security professionals speak of a dropper file. And all that means in plain English is you open up an Adobe with a report. And in the background, there's an application that's being installed. That is not malicious. But what that application actually does is go out and download various malware and utilities that enables bad actors to gain mm-hmm. access into your environment. So it's often how ransomware is brought into an organization is through a phishing email. So how do you prevent it? Uh, certainly there's technologies that are available like FishMe and Mimecast and others that provide both product and services to reduce the likelihood of a, of a phishing event. But I think the most important tool is training. It is so vital that organizations commit to a security awareness training program that targets all employees, that further targets employees in higher risk roles with enhanced training. For example, IT, security teams, finance and accounting in particular, the executive team. And I also think that having an ongoing perpetual phishing exercise is extremely effective. Shifting gears a little, although you've mentioned it a few times within our conversation already, but in May of last year, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, was put into effect, and there have been offshoot regulations stateside as well. But it seems like many organizations are still struggling with the compliance with that regulation and the associated costs of it. So from your perspective, what are some of the greater challenges that companies are facing? So some of the greater challenges companies are facing would include just truly understanding what the expectations are. Also being transparent in their analysis of what the risk is if they were to fall short, say if they were to have a material privacy breach event occur, what would qualify for a 4% penalty, 4% turnover, let's say in GDPR language, penalty versus a 2% turnover 
penalty, mapping that back to their business activities. And so that's, that's one challenge being, you know, understanding the risk relative to the GDPR. Second challenge is there are organizations that, and appropriately so, they may not have had the same risk profile that warranted the same level of investment into security capabilities that GDP, a post-GDPR environment will require. And so a challenge is, uh, in that regard, would be education across the executive management team to include the board of directors. But equally as important will be across the broader technology teams that have to design, implement, and maintain those systems. How they support those systems will be different going forward in many cases. Example. What qualifies as an incident from a security professional's point of view has changed dramatically. Data may not have left the organization, but if it was mishandled by an appropriate and an inappropriate person internally or a trusted supplier, you may have to disclose that. And even if it did, um, if data did leave the organization, but it wasn't a, a quote hack, it was a mishandling event that may not have been reportable prior to GDPR. And it, very well slash is likely to be reportable today. So how they go about their their various workflows and their day-to-day activities often needs to change and their education across the employee community and supplier community needs to occur. And those are pretty substantial challenges for a lot of companies. Obviously, data protection is in the name, but do you think it's effective? Do you think that there are still room where because of the challenge and because of maybe how incomplete the prescription was when it was first given, that there's room to continue to be more in line with what the concept of GDPR originally was? Yes and no. So to your question, uh, or as it relates to, are we seeing progress on their goals of reducing the overall volume of misuse and oftentimes flat-out abuse of privacy expectations? We are seeing we are seeing great progress. We are seeing one of those, uh, an example that I, know I appreciate as a practitioner would be that harmonization of expectations across each individual member state within the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was so important to organizations such as DFIN, wherein we're operating in the vast majority of them. So having a more a simplified set of regulations, if you would, is very helpful. I see that more in organizations have embraced their expectations. And so along with that comes more controls and overall respect for privacy. And a key tenant to privacy is security. So they definitely have a very positive impact. Here domestically in the United States, California, Tennessee, Nevada, their state laws have gotten a lot more teeth uh, and acknowledgement quite candidly. Uh, their applicability uh, as a result of the just the sheer press that GDPR received. Where I look forward to some continued clarity would be, for example, what constitutes a reportable event. How are we measuring what is a material? You know, I'll use the word breach uh, in a privacy context, at least. Uh, what qualifies as a breach? We need more clarity there. What the penalty structure will look like? We need a lot more clarity there. And and we're seeing, as time marches on, we will continue to see more, but we're beginning to see through the outcomes of court rulings just directionally what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, we're getting more clarity, and I think that's going to be very helpful. Sure. 
I read in an article recently that by the end of next year in 2020, 67% of enterprise infrastructures will be cloud-based and 82% of the workload will reside on the cloud, which doesn't seem super surprising to me. And probably most people wouldn't think that's surprising, but it does seem that there needs to be a much bigger focus on how do we keep something that is still a little bit elusive, mm -hmm. that cloud concept, how do we keep it secure? So from a customer perspective, what should they look for when looking for a secure cloud solution? Sure. So there are there's two tracks of interest that customers usually want to focus upon. And within each track, there's three swim lanes um, of validation. So let me try to tackle all that. First would be with your general security technology. It's so very important for organizations that provide services, that produce products, acknowledge that as they transform their portfolios to be cloud-centric, they must acknowledge that the technologies used in a cloud will be different. From a security point of view, you need different security technologies for the cloud than you would for on-premise, or at least for many of the use cases we need to solve for. Second would be the processes that are in place. So here at Defend, for example, we illustrate our, the effectiveness of our security technology, the disciplined approach to process that we use to support the security technology, as well as the overall infrastructure and application solutions um, that comprise Venue and FunSuite Arc and other products that we offer by way of instruments like the AT101 Frameworks SOC 2 certification. In order to achieve that, we leverage global frameworks that provide a general guidelines and playbooks to success for security. For example, the NIST, ISO 27001, and others. And so we've selected the controls and um, control activities that are relevant for our business and for our products and relevant to our customers and created a defense cybersecurity framework that serves as our guiding principles to how we build and deploy technologies, how we monitor uh, those technologies, both from an operational and from a security perspective. From a customer's perspective, I guess, then, how external is that promotion of having those certifications? How, if those are cornerstones for a secure solution, how, from an external point of view, do you know that those are in place and that's a priority for the organization that you're doing business with? So a couple of thoughts. So we we pull the, the relevant components of ISO 27001, incorporating those controls and those expectations into our AT101 SOC 2 framework, as we would say. And we hire a third party to perform a series of audits and they attest by way of certification uh, when they issue the SOC 2 report how well we are performing to those control expectations. And so, and we elect to use presently Deloitte, one of the best in breed organizations for assurance. And they're going to provide a true and accurate representation of how well we performed in this regard. And we share that report upon request from clients. Uh, we issue this report annually. Each of our products are in scope, particularly products like Venue and FunSuite Arc. The clients certainly expect that we not only provide evidence that our operational processes and the overall ecosystem that comprises these solutions is operationally sound, it's going to be available 24 by 7, not be challenged with outages and the alike unnecessarily, but they're equally as critical as the security of them. 
particular when I think about the types of data that is uh, entrusted to us and within our venue offerings. And so we also represent um, very mature security controls and privacy controls as part of that, that same SOC 2 certification. Right. I think that that's probably helpful for somebody looking for a cloud solution as they compare and, and try to figure out what's best for them. So thank you for that insight. So from maybe a, a bit of a more personal but also professional standpoint, I guess, who do you think is doing it right within the field? Who are you watching, companies or leaders, um, some people that have voices that any customer might want to listen in on, but especially from your professional perspective, are really changing the way we're talking about security? Sure. So I'll start with a couple of examples, and I'll try to because I think it's very timely, um, given the evolution of cloud. From a cloud technology perspective, I talked today quite a bit about how strategies or overall approaches to securing those efforts. And uh, the fine folks at FishTech have really demonstrated a fantastic capability in a very short period of time. Uh, I believe they've been in the market about three years now. But they're, they're rapidly demonstrating they are a thought leader in, uh, in cloud security from an advisory and overall services perspective. Probably because the founder and CEO, Gary Fish, being a, a bit of a legend in the security industry, he started, matured, and sold several security product and services businesses to the tune, I believe, of his, his last firm that was sold for, or is now valued, I should say, at over $2 billion, which is the, the largest security services firm in the United States. Um, so he certainly has had a very successful track record. Another example is services, because as it becomes so very important to have you know the right skill sets and the and the right roles when it comes to security. Um, and there's an also very successful organization named ReliQuest, who's headquartered in Tampa, Florida. Their founder and CEO Brian Murphy has done a tremendous job. And when I met Brian Murphy and the team, probably 2011, um, I was so very impressed with a 35, 40 person startup organization who was able to demonstrate such deep expertise and around security operations, investigations, in the moments that matter of incident response and overall security monitoring. That's so very important. And they are now five or 600 people strong, mm-hmm. valued over a billion dollars. They have some of the largest brands in the world now entrusting them to be the frontline defense of monitoring for cybersecurity attacks and the frontline response to mitigate those risks. And so that would be a, a second example. And then the last example I'll use would be actually that of Google, who can be very controversial in the topics of privacy, uh, depending on what we would like to talk about. But they have taken their successes of generally the Google search capability mm-hmm. and extended that to enable security organizations to more rapidly obtain the insights across a very large and very diverse data lake, for example. So imagine being able to go to a web browser, and the product is known as Chronicle. And it came to market in 2019. Mm-hmm. But it is getting a lot of press and a lot of for possibly being the most disruptive security tool mm-hmm. in the last several years um, because of the sheer speed to which we can query terabytes upon terabytes of data and get rapid responses. As the cloud and overall internet continues to experience explosive growth, you know, one consequence of that is the, the the volume of data that we have to monitor. And so when you're trying to aggregate terabytes of information daily, sometimes hourly, depending on the organization, and you have to 
correlate 100 terabytes, a petabyte of log data to find that needle in a haystack. It can take hours, sometimes days, to get the responses you're looking for. And with Chronicle's capabilities, they've really got that down to remarkably uh, low period of time. Yeah, just a few minutes. That sounded very interesting, and I hadn't heard of Gary Fish, so we'll take some reading back with us. One last question, just to bring this conversation sort of back to your personal habits, and what is an application on your phone that you would recommend that you feel helps you do more with your day or at work? There are two. So first would be OpenVPN. OpenVPN. Correct. So most employees in 2019 know that if they're going to connect to a company's digital assets, they need to do so in a protected manner. So the common practice is to connect over a company VPN. Why would you not protect your personal information, such as all your passwords that can be extracted or your credit card transactions that you're booking airline reservations and the like? I personally use VPN 24 hours a day on every device that I can, which is almost all of them. Secondly would be, I've acknowledged a long time ago that my information has been compromised and someone's probably trying to compromise it right now. It's just mm-hmm. a, the world we live in today. And so Google Authenticator, that multi-factor, two-factor mm-hmm. application from Google um, is so widely integrated in Apple and Android markets to a very high percentage of applications have Google Authenticator uh, integration. So that provides a secondary level of protection for me uh, in the event that my password has been compromised. Uh, and oftentimes at no fault of my own because of bad apps and mm-hmm. various vulnerabilities, you know, like at least I had that second factor mm-hmm. to better protect myself and my family. Out of curiosity, do you think that the two-step verification, because I use that as well with the, it texts you a code and then you use that code to get into whichever application you're trying to, is that more secure or maybe it's on par with having your thumbprint or using a digit to, as your secured password is like something like an imprint from one of your fingers. Is that more secure or is it sort of two halves of one? That is a fantastic question for which we could have a five-hour spirit of debate. <laughs> one side of that coin says your fingerprint never changes. So if I were able to lift your fingerprint, for which it happens, you've seen all the spy movies, but if your fingerprint, digital or physical imprint, were to be compromised, then... It's a one-time password, if you would. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Google Authenticator and other multi-factor solutions out there issue one-time passwords that change within three minutes, 30 seconds, depending mm-hmm. on the platform. And and so even if you were to compromise my 10-digit PIN from Google Authenticator or any other application, you have a much more narrow window of time to leverage that. My opinion is it's... step Authenticator it is. <laughs> yes, it is less secure to use your fingerprint. And then the, there's an entire rabbit hole we can go down about where does that fingerprint go? Oh, that is a fascinating question. That does sound like a rabbit hole that we would yes. spend a long time in. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I think that you gave some amazing clarity into GDPR, some of the other cyber things that people are concerned about these days and how the future of that industry is being shaped and evolving. So thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.